this morning. Good. I checked this real quick. Oh, there we go. Right one. So I don't need this one. All right. So, uh, like Dave said, we are continuing our uh, way through Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 today. And we're just going to be talking about another one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. So, we're going to pick up, and uh, like I said, we're going to look at uh, Daniel 4, and we're going to look at another one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. This guy, he has, uh, he has quite a few dreams, and they mean, they mean a lot of different things, and we're going to look at it today and see, okay, what does this dream mean today that he has? Uh, and so, uh, the title of the sermon today is going to be God's Sovereignty in Babylon, because when I was looking at this text, there was a read a lot of different people's notes and takes on it, and everybody went so many different directions, and I'm like, man, I gotta just choose one. And so I was like, you know what, this is what I'm gonna land on. We're actually gonna talk about God's sovereignty in this, uh, even within uh, Babylon right now. And so we're gonna pick up, we're gonna look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, this is a little bit different. Now, Daniel, obviously, is called Daniel after the prophet Daniel. Uh, it's called Daniel because Daniel wrote the book. Now, in this particular section, this is actually Nebuchadnezzar writing here. And this is a letter that Nebuchadnezzar is writing to all peoples. Uh, how do we know this? Well, starting in verse 1, he tells us who's writing this. So in verse 1, he says, King, Nebuch King Nebuchadnezzar to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. So he's beginning this letter, introducing himself, letting us know, okay, who he is. And when we're going to look at this here, we're going to see in uh, chapters two, uh, verses 2 through 3, this is kind of like an epilogue. So this is him talking after all of the events that happened in chapter 4. So he's going back after everything in chapter 4 happens, and he's writing to everybody about these events. So here in verses 2 through 3, he's saying that I am pleased to tell, uh, to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. Uh, how great are his mercies and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, if you recall last week, uh, Dave told us that there was a, a lot of religion within Nebuchadnezzar, that he followed a lot of. He was very religious but he wasn't repentant. Uh, and we're actually picking up in the same place. Well, how do we know that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't truly repentant after all the events that happened last week that we saw uh, and that he's still kind of doing the same thing that he's been doing? Well, if we skip all the way up to verses 7 through 8, we see that uh, this is him right after he has his dream. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. Then he calls everybody to himself. And he says, When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel named Belshazzar uh, after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him came before me. Now, we know that he isn't repentant. We know that he's not following the true God because, well, he's still bringing in all of these magicians and diviners and guys from these other gods, and he's still calling Daniel by his name, Belshazzar, which he gave him after his gods. And so we see that there's this continuation of things happening to Nebuchadnezzar that God is allowing to 
cause him to understand who he is, who God is, but every single time, Nebuchadnezzar just goes right back to his old gods, and he keeps rejecting what God has done for him. Um, but before we go too far into, into this context, uh, we're going to look at what's actually going on here, and then we're going to look at his King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we're going to see what's going on in this whole context. So if we were to break it down, it kind of looks like this. In verses 4 through 18, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that disturbs him. So verses 4 through 18, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In verses 19 through 27, we see that Daniel is able to interpret the dream. And then in verses 28 through 37, uh, we see that the dream comes to fruition, that what is promised within this dream actually happens. Um, so we're actually going to open up our Bibles, and we're going to read from our, our Bibles what actually happens in this dream. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me uh, to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 10, and we're going to read through verse 18. So I am reading from the CSB here, so it'll be a little bit different than some of y'all's uh, translations. So this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaking here. And he says, starting in verse 10, In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it, the birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its root in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender, uh, in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives to it anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over it. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have the spirit of the holy gods. So we pick up here, and we see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This dream actually disturbs him. He's kind of like, I mean, I don't even know what's going on in this dream. This is another dream that I've had that's just... So I'm going to call everybody to myself. I'm going to call magicians, diviners, Chaldeans. They're going to tell me what's going on in this dream. So unlike his previous dream where he tells them, okay, uh, you tell me my dream and the interpretation, and I won't kill you. Uh, but this time he says, you know what, I'm going to tell you my dream, and then you're just going to give me the interpretation. And so he tells them the dream, and this time they still cannot tell him the interpretation. So then he waits for Daniel to come, and Daniel comes along. And he tells Daniel the dream. Daniel's disturbed. He's like, hey, I'm sorry, king, that you had this dream, but here, let me, uh, I'm going to interpret this dream for you, and I will let you know uh, what this dream is saying. So we're going to jump forward to 
verses 24 through 26, and here is the uh, interpretation that Daniel gives to the king about his dream. So it says that, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the, the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and, and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is a ruler over all human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. So for this here, uh, this is actually going to be a 12-month period between reading this passage and then reading the next passage. So a year is going to pass by. And when it talks about uh, seven periods of time, it's believed that this is, a, is going to take place over seven years. So this entire passage of chapter 4 is believed to take place over an eight-year time span. Uh, and we're going to pick up here, verse 28 and 30. We'll see what happens next. So it says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon, the great... Uh, Babylon the Great, that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's up on his palace, on the roof. He's walking around, being very prideful. Daniel actually warns him right before this passage. He's like, hey, don't be prideful. You need to repent. Turn from your evil deeds. Do righteousness. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to him. A year later, still no change. Everything's pretty much the same. He's wandering around on his palace, just looking out over everything that he's built, everything that he owns, and he's saying, look at me, and look at everything that I've done. Uh, so here, I've actually got some, uh, some photos of what his palace looked like. So this here is known as the uh, Ishtar Gate, uh, which was part of Babylon. This is actually, parts of it were taken and put together in Berlin, and they're in a museum right now. So you can actually go to Berlin and go see the uh, Ishtar Gate that was on the city of Babylon. And this is what it's believed that the city of Babylon actually looked like. That it was a very prosperous city, had massive gardens and walls and gates. Uh, and that here's another view of what people, people believe that it looked like, that it had rivers flowing through it, and you can have boats going through canals. Uh, and also, if you were curious and you want to know where Babylon was uh, compared to today, so if you see the word where it says Babylonia, if you look down to the right a little bit, you can see the city of Babylon. It's actually in current uh, Iraq right now. So if you know where Iraq is, that's where Babylon is. It's located in Iraq. And if you wanted to know a little bit more where everything else is, to the left next to the sea, uh, where you see Judah, that's where Israel is right now. You see the Black Sea up north to the, basically look up to the right, northeast is Russia. So if you want to actually put everything into perspective, where everything is today versus back then. That's kind of where it is. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's up on his palace in Babylon when he's got this empire and he's got this wonderful palace and he's walking around saying, okay, look at all the great things that I've done. Look at everything that I've built. And while he is in the middle of saying these things, he hears this voice of heaven cry out and say to him, and it says, at that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky 
until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, this is a really, uh, this is a real interesting passage here in being like, wait, wait, what do you mean? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? And so, so this is actually a painting uh, from the late, uh, about the late 1700s that says, hey, this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that he started to act like an animal, his hair got all crazy, his nail, his fingernails and toenails, they all grew like claws. Um, but a lot of people actually deny that this happened to Nebuchadnezzar because they say, well, we can look at the Babylonians' archives and all their history, and it doesn't say anything about that. Well, other historians will actually argue and say that, well, we believe it still happened because when we look through history, we can see if there was something that happened to someone in power and it wasn't very flattering, they didn't write it down or they erased it from their annals. And then other people will say, well, but then there's other historians who report that, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, there was a time where you just don't hear anything about him or what he was doing, but we know he was still ruling. And so it's kind of like, well, so then what did happen to him? And so there's actually a... Uh, a psychological disorder that people believe actually happened to him. It's called boanthropy. It's basically where somebody starts to believe that they're either an ox or a cow and starts acting like one. And so they will actually go out, crawl on all fours, eat grass and stuff like that. And so a lot of historians believe this is actually what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And it didn't just happen for a short period of time. This is actually a span of over seven years where he was being prideful and wouldn't acknowledge God as being God. Instead, he was basically like, you know what, I'm still prideful. I'm going to go around and eat grass and, you know, act like an animal. And yet I'm still, he still thinks he's, he's the one who is sovereign or he's the one who's God. And so we're going to jump forward a little bit. We're going to see uh, verse 34. It says, but at the end of those days, at the end of these seven periods of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity, ret sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. So it's believed that this act of him looking up, because while he's believing he's a cow, he's not really doing much talking or anything like this. So they believe that while he is looking up, he is making an acknowledgement that, look, I am not the Most High. I am not the, the sovereign over everything and that he is understanding that, hey, you know what, I'm, I am humble because God is the most high God. So I'm going to read, actually, the rest of this here. So in verse 34, 337, we're going to see what, uh, what his response is. So in verse 34, we see here, he says, But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. And he says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? And it says, at the time my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens. 
because all his works are true and his ways are just, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So when I was looking at this passage, I was like, okay, so what do we, what do we learn from this passage here? Um, I was doing a lot of studying, and there were a lot of people who just did not agree with each other. And I was like, oh, great. Now I'm stuck in the middle of this trying to decide, okay, who do I agree with? Well, most people, what they were actually talking about, they wanted to know, okay, was Nebuchadnezzar really repentant? Uh, we saw in other passages where it looked like he was repentant because he started praising God, but then all of a sudden he was like, no, I'm going to go back to this. Well, this is actually the last we see of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And what I'm going to tell you is that I am not going to take a side because I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he was truly repentant or not. And the only way I'm ever going to know is when I die, I will find out. Um, if he's there, then hey, he was repentant. If he's not, then no, he wasn't. And so I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm not going to say, hey, let's, let's try to read into this context, or read into this text and try to make a, de a decision that wasn't made clear to us. But what should we look at this text and say, okay, what do we know about this text? What can we learn from it? Um, should we just say that, hey, this is going to be a text about moralism, that, you know, we just shouldn't be prideful and everything's going to go great for us? As long as we're not prideful, we're not going to end up thinking we're like the beast of the field and wander out and start eating grass and stuff? Well, no, because I don't think it's, I don't think every single text that we look at needs an, a moral application. And, and what do I mean by that is that oftentimes when we read scripture, we try to look for it and say, okay, where does this tell me that I need to be good or where I shouldn't be bad? And I don't believe that is exactly what this text is telling us. Because when we look at this text, we have to ask ourselves first, who was it written to? What was going on with the people that it was written to? And then what is the point of this text to them? And so if we can recall, this text is written to the people of Israel. So what's going on with the people of Israel right now? Well, they are captives in the land of in the land of Israel, in the land of Babylon, excuse me. Um, so if I were to say, okay, now I'm going to tell these people in Israel who are captive right now that Daniel is writing this moralistic tale about not being prideful to them, um, I, don't, I don't think that fits the text properly because they are captives right now. They've been taken from their own land. They've been humbled already. And so I don't think the point that Daniel is making here is that, hey, guys, you know, be, be humble. Don't be prideful, and everything's going to go well for you. But what I do think, and I think we can actually find the answer in this text, is if we look back at uh, Daniel 4, verse 17. And in 4.17, so this is part of the dream, and this is what one of the watchers is saying in the dream. He said, this word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. So what I believe that this passage, what we can pull from this passage is that this passage is about God, this passage is about who he is, and this passage is about what he's doing. So if we look at the entire context of the book of Daniel and we see how Israel is a broken people and that they are in exile, 
and that they are not a people just to be reminded to be humble, that they are a people that need to be reminded who their God is. And what we see from this text is that we see that God is sovereign, and he is showing that he is sovereign even in Babylon. Uh, Not only is he sovereign in Babylon and in Israel, but he's sovereign throughout all of the kingdoms, throughout all of the kingdoms, even throughout all of time. And in his sovereignty that he's working out here, he's also working out redemption and his plan for redemption. Notice how at the end here that he says that he uses the lowliest of peoples and he places the lowliest of peoples over them. I think we can actually make a connection here. If you were to ask yourself, okay, then who was the lowliest people or who was the lowliest person of all? I think when we look through scripture, we can see there was one who was born in a manger when there was no place for him. There was one who was rejected by all people. If we look at uh, Philippians 2, we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. We see that it says to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if we were to ask ourselves, okay, who was the lowliest? And then we see Jesus, and we see this passage that says that he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. Okay, this doesn't mean that Jesus gave up being God. A lot of people will go and make that mistake. So if somebody tries to tell you, hey, Jesus gave up being God, no, this is not what it's saying. What it's saying is that Jesus, even though he was greater than all of us, he could have come down to this earth and he could have been a more majestic king than Nebuchadnezzar was. He could have been more majestic than Solomon. He could have had more than what he wanted, but no, that's not why he came. He came as a humble servant to purchase you, to die on the cross for you, because he had a mission from the beginning to come and redeem a people and the way he was going to do it was by becoming a humble servant. So that's what this passage is telling us here is that Jesus chose to be the lowliest. He chose to be what was foolish to people in order to purchase you. So if we continue this, if the continue the text in Philippians verses 9 through 11, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we, when we look at this and we see, okay, Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself high above everybody. But then we compare him to Jesus and we see Jesus came lowly and he came as a servant and to serve. And after dying and resurrecting, God exalts him high above everyone else, above every king, above every country, every kingdom. And then in the end, his name will be exalted by everyone. Uh, If you remember last week, uh, during Dave's lesson, they were talking about how Nebuchadnezzar, or yeah, last week, Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to look at his statue and basically worship him and praise him and be like, hey, I want everybody, all peoples, to praise me. But that's not 
that's not for Nebuchadnezzar. That's not for any person except for Jesus. And we see at the end that God is going to exalt Christ above everyone, and every knee will bow and exalt Jesus. So we're going to look at this other passage here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So when we see a passage like this, we look back here, we see, okay, what were the things that were foolish? What were the things that were weak? What were the things that were going to shame the strong? Well, it's Christ coming as a servant and dying on a cross. The cross was a very, considered a very foolish and lowly death. It was the worst of the worst died on the cross. It was that if you were on a cross, well, you weren't, you weren't just up there. You were, you were up there naked. You were humiliated. And this is what Christ did. He came and he humbled himself and he died the lowliest of deaths. He did what was foolish in the sight of the world. Unlike looking at Nebuchadnezzar when he's looking at his kingdom and he's like, look at all these great things that I have and all these great things that I've done. Jesus didn't come in and say, hey, look at all these great things that I've done and everything. Well, he could have because he created it all. But he chose to be lowly and he chose to be humble. Look at one more passage here. Ephesians 1, 18 through 21, he says that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So when we look at God and we see, okay, what did God do to Nebuchadnezzar? He humbled him. Why did he choose to humble him? Well, because he wasn't acknowledging God for who he is. And when we look at all these texts, we see, we see things that are common. And here's one commonality in all of these is that God is a jealous God, and he's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his majesty. He's jealous for his honor, his kingdom. But not only is God jealous for these things, but God has also invited you to join him in beholding his glory. Not only has he invited you, but he has prepared a way that you may be redeemed that seems foolish to the world. So 1 Corinthians also tells us, For the word of, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But what does it mean that the cross is the power of God, or the word of the cross is the power of God? For what? For salvation. 
Ephesians tells us this. It says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when we look at a passage like Daniel 4, and we see, man, this is really hard to come up with some type of application here. Look, you don't always need a moral application or something to say, okay, this is what you do or don't do. When we look at this, a passage like this, the very first thing, no matter what passage it is, what should we do first, is we should say, ask, what does this passage say about God? What does it say about who he is? What does it say about his character? What does it say about what he's doing? Sometimes some passages are a little bit harder than others, but I will guarantee you there's always an answer about who God is, what he's doing, what he has done, and what he will be doing. And so when we look at a passage like Daniel 4, we can see, well, God is being sovereign, and he's acting in his sovereignty towards the king, towards the people of Babylon, and towards Israel. He sent the people of Israel there not only just to be in exile for the sins that they have committed, but he is also using them as a witness to these people to let them know who God is. When we look at the Old Testament, we see like in Deuteronomy, it tells us that the nation of Israel was to behave a certain way in order that the other nations would see who God is and that they might also glorify God. And so we see this is what's going on here in Daniel, and this is what we can walk away with, is that we can look at it and we can say, okay, these are a people that are in a land that doesn't follow God, that doesn't know God, that doesn't believe in God. So what are these people to do? Well, they're to follow God. They're to believe in him. They're to trust him, no matter what the circumstance is. And while they're trusting him, God is still sovereign, and he's still working things out, whether these people reject him or not. And so that's an application we can pull from this, is that we can see who our God is and what he is doing. Uh, with that, you all are dismissed to your groups. Um, seniors, guys and gals are out in the portables. Um, guys, the freshmen over here, uh, sophomores, juniors, somewhere over here. Ladies, freshmen, sophomores, juniors all over there.